Turbulence knocked passengers around. It opened up overhead bins, sending presents flying through the aisles. And suddenly a bright flash of light illuminated the right side of the plane. And her mother, Maria, screamed, this is the end. And then the whole world went black for Julianne. We invite you to join us on our hunt for all things spooky. We're here for the tricks and the treats. I'm Elise. And I'm Haley. And And this this is is Easy Easy Bake Coven. Hello. (laughs) Hello. I I just love that that we go from texting to talking to... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, check out the reel I just sent you. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Pause the podcast while we look at reels and talk shit. Sorry, I was so late. The oh, great cornstarch debacle of 2022. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, if that's the only debacle evening. we have, like, pretty doing pretty good. It's true. It's true. How are you? Um, I'm great. I'm excited to tell you that it's finally starting to get dark here. Oh, I mean, good. Like, it's still, so you can sleep at night. Still pretty light out, but yeah, this yeah. morning I woke up like at I don't know two or three to turn on the fan because I was hot, and uh-huh. I'm so used to just opening my eyes and it's light out. And I opened my eyes and uh-huh. I was like, oh, "It's fucking dark." <laughs> like I'm not oh. used to this, so it was a little Finally scary because I'm just not used to it. Yeah, yeah. So that that's Weird. really nice. how are you? Good. Yeah. Other than pouring corn cornstarch corn all over my kitchen and myself. <laughs> Uh, otherwise other than that i'm good i really think you should uh share that i was a comedic genius and it was really good i will it's so fucking stupid just like it was one of those moments where it like happened and i was like no are you no are you fuck yeah this didn't really fucking happen fucking kidding me there's no way that i just did this what a dumbass at least you still had some cornstarch left over that's true. You know what's stupid, though? I didn't even fucking need it. I was reaching for the sugar, and I just knocked the back no. of cornstarch. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Then that major sucks. Yeah. yeah no, I didn't even sucks. need it. And I was like, Matthew, I think you didn't close it properly. He's like, no, I definitely closed it. It just exploded because it like hit the counter so hard. I was like, I remember fine. once Ben bought this like really expensive cocoa powder that was like really luxe that he wanted to like make mocha with. Oh, no. And... um. <sighs> But it was like in a, a bag. It wasn't in like the tubs they normally come in. Stupid. And that fucking thing of cocoa powder. Oh no. Every fucking time I I swear I just yeah. stood near it. Yeah. It would explode. <laughs> and we had like very grooved real wood floors in the house we lived uh-huh. in. And it would get into the grooves all the fucking time. Oh god. And I was like, Ben, why did you buy this fucking cocoa powder? Just buy the three buy, more cocoa buy powder the like one everybody else. In the container that you can put a lid on. It's <laughs> like I was stable. So happy when it finally was out oh, i bet never buying was this it delicious again. though i mean i don't know you didn't it's fucking chocolate like <laughs> it's all good <laughs> Wild. Uh, it wasn't worth it i'll say that it was no not worth the heartache not worth and the cleaning the, yeah exactly mm-hmm. the cleanup time no not worth it at all so we've never bought that again good for you thank goodness hershey's hershey's does just a fine job yep it's fine mm-hmm. it's just fine Perfect. um I think we have to say hello to some new listeners. Yeah, we, we do. In yes. our lives. <laughs> Welcome. Hi. Listeners. I'm going to clean up my language now that we have new listeners. No, I'm not. <laughs> that's why you're here, because we're such sailor mouths. Maybe. Yes, that's true. <gasps> yeah, if you're like a good, if you're part of the coven, then you're fine with foul language. Mm-hmm. You don't have to yeah. use it, but you have to be okay with it. You have to be okay with us using it. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Where did yeah, you come we've from? Had, we've had like an uptick of people and um, it's been very exciting to see that happen. So yeah, very happy to have you and uh, welcome. Elise is like, really oh my God, that. I'm like nervous. There's all these people listening. I'm like, fuck yeah, there's all these people listening. It. it makes me feel nothing but happiness. Welcome. <laughs> welcome. Did you hear, maybe you didn't hear because you're up, up in the Arctic. Oh, Did God. you hear about this 12 year old girl in Alabama? No. Wait, oh are there bodies involved? There are bodies involved. Okay, I saw a headline. Did not open it. Tell me everything. Oh, my God. So this, someone's driving along this, like, rural Alabama road. Of course. And there's Alabama. a 12-year-old, like, out of it, disheveled. I don't know if she was nude. Oh, my God. Walking along the side of the road, and they, like, pick her up. She had, like, chewed her way out of restraints. <gasps> this guy had kidnapped her. Oh, my God. And held her there in his disgusting-ass house. For oh a week, she chewed out of her restraints and escaped. And when the police went back, they found two decomposing bodies. <gasps> Where she'd been so kept? he's a murderer. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. But it's very vague. Like, I think they're being intentionally vague because they don't want to yeah, give sure. her identity. Um, but she hadn't been reported missing despite being gone with him for a week. So What? I hope that wherever so she's we've got going, an Alabama kind of her. situation going yeah. on is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm like, I was today. I was trying to think of <sighs> um, ways in which she could be missing from her family and not reported missing for a week with it being innocent, and I couldn't think of any. I was like, well, maybe right. she was going to visit her grandma, and they got carjacked, and she was kidnapped, and grandma was killed and dumped in a bush. This is very but then optimistic. Like, but if they didn't hear from her for a week, like they would right. still hear from her if she was with grandma. They maybe right. she was on her way to summer camp. No, her family would make sure that she made it to summer camp. Like I can't find a way where didn't it would be okay for that to happen. Cover a missing woman a few episodes ago where it was similar thing. Like she was missing, but they did. Oh no, maybe it, it was, was the guy in my story guy. from Marcy and Moore. Guy, yeah, they just never they were reported like, him missing. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he just doesn't want to be with us. Like right? no, that's not. Yeah. that's not how yeah. that works. Yeah, and this girl's twelve. Yeah. So oh, they man. said that they arrested the guy, thankfully. Uh, his mm-hmm. name is Jose Paulino Pascual Reyes, who's 37. Mm-hmm. And um, he was arrested and he's being held for three counts of capital murder, which I thought there's two bodies there. So maybe there was three. Um, one count of first degree kidnapping, two counts of abuse of corpse. And um, oh, they said that two other people lived in the house. What? But they couldn't confirm. So there's just all this weird stuff. I think this is just like black phone where there's like the brother is living in the house and doesn't know that his brother's a Satan. They weren't there at the time. So it's like, I don't, I don't understand. There's more to it. And we might actually not ever know because they might withhold things that don't need to be made public for the protection of this girl's identity and dignity. Yeah. So insane. What a shit show. Also update on the pilot story that I like touched on last week. Do you remember the guy who jumped out of the plane? Yes. So apparently we still don't really know why, but I guess the nine one the air traffic controllers had called nine one one because the guy who remained in the plane was like communicating with air traffic control as it was happening. Like my co-pilot just jumped out oh. of the plane. So that makes it like a little bit less sinister on that front. Cause I was like, did he throw yeah. him out? Like, why didn't anyone know? know? Right. Yeah. But he was like telling them and like air traffic control was aware of the situation. Still don't know why wow. he did it, but <sighs> man, 
I was telling my dad about that and mm-hmm. he was just like, why would you do that? Why would like, you ever do that? You may not survive the crash, but you're definitely not going to survive if you jump out of the plane. Like why? The only thing I can think is that he like panicked and thought that he was closer to the ground than he was. You know, like sometimes yeah. when you're, I mean, you think a pilot would understand relativity and like right. <laughs> know that like they're right. really far up and like can look at the gauge and see how far they are. Right. I wonder if he's like, oh, we're about to like die in a fiery crash. I'm going to jump out now and try and save myself. They were yeah, like, like just not thinking rationally in the face of death. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Like panicking, which is what you would hope a, a pilot wouldn't do. <laughs> right, right. You'd think like, they'd be trained the to not feel those things. Yeah. Right. So, Well, it's kind of funny that you have those two pieces of news because um, they're just sort of similar to two of the stories I'm going to tell tonight in a very roundabout way. Just tonight, you're going to tell themes. us about 9 11. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's your a little known historical event. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard? Oh, of actually, it? yeah, I could do a 9 11 truther episode. Yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah, true. That's true. Haley, <laughs> duh. Yeah, come on. I can't do that one. I forgot. I forgot that jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams. Okay, sorry. Continue. You had like a small version of it in one of our um, scary, conspiracy theories. spooky hours. Yeah. Yes, conspiracy theories. So if yes. people are interested in Haley's hot takes about 9-11, you can head on over. Spooky I would love to be shadow banned and not have anyone ever hear anything that we create ever again. <laughs> Just because of your just because fucking halibut about jet fuel, Dick Cheney. Okay, anyway, motherfuckers. Okay. Anyway, your turn. Also, I lit a candle. It's been on a lot today, um, mm-hmm. and it's inadvertently it is a mammoth cave candle that has bats on it, and we will be talking about bats a little oh, bit today. Spooky. As an aside, yeah. So buckle up. <laughs> I didn't light a candle, so I mean, you don't really need to. I don't These get haunted. Are, I felt like we needed something a little lighter. And so um, these have positive endings to them, which is great. Yes. So drink up, pull out your wine. You know, things might get a little bit tumultuous, a little turbulent, (gasps) if you will. But are you sure it's not 9 11? I'm just kidding. That doesn't have a happy ending. (laughs) (laughs) No, it does not. (laughs) Shadow ban is coming real quick. So today I decided that I would continue on with my summer series. And I'm saying that yes. in quotes because this is literally the second episode. So I don't think that qualifies as a, theor- a series, but in my mind, whatever, if you did one, it'd be a series. <laughs> Thank you. Because it's about the intention. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Intention is everything. Yeah. Um, about vanishing in the great outdoors. And if you this. are new to our podcast, which like we just said, some of you are, you'll see that I started this so-called summer series exactly 10 episodes ago oh, with the what? disappearance of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. I know. I was like, that was 10 episodes ago? Oh, what the hell? So much shit has happened Where since the days then. go? Yeah, actually, a lot has happened I since know. then. A lot has happened. Um, Glenn and Bessie Hyde mysteriously vanished in the Grand Canyon. So if that interests you, give episode 31 a listen. But tonight, since summer is just about over, we're going to cover three disappearances. I'm going to try to cram as much into this summer series as I can. (laughs) Who miraculously reappeared. (gasps) Yes. I thought it was about time we had a happy ending on this podcast. Ayo. Travis Alexander had a few happy endings (laughs) before a sad one. (laughs) I wanted a real one. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, so our first tale tonight is going to be about eight-year-old Catherine Van Alst, who disappeared in 1946 during a family camping trip to Devil's Den State Park in Arkansas. Oh, shit. 
So red flag number one, it's called Devil's Den. Yeah. Come on. Mm. Oh my <laughs> God, that should be where we do our first, no, our first EBC oh. camping trip will be at Mountain Brook, Mountain Brook Meadow. Oh my God. I hope, oh yeah. I hope that's what it's called. The good place. <laughs> yes. It, by Mountain Hood. The second one will be at this place. Devil's Den. Devil's 100%. Den. Love it. Uh, while it does sound sinister, the park actually received its name from the 60 crevice caves found throughout the park. Uh, these are sandstone caves that resulted from a collapse of hillsides thousands of years ago. And when those hillsides collapsed, it caused huge pieces of sandstone to crack and fall in on themselves, creating caves and or Satan's lair. Hence the name. Love it. Is it creepy looking? No. I mean, it really oh, just looks like a, a, caves. a park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a big, beautiful park. It's like, you know, very much a state park, not like a little, yeah, you know, ditzy park. What, I don't know what a ditzy park is, but you know. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, though. Like, I understand exactly what you you're saying. You can just picture me. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. This rugged terrain was also once home to the Butterfield Overland Stagecoach Route, which brought both passengers and mail from Memphis, Tennessee and St. Louis, Missouri, all the way to San Francisco, California between the years 1958 or sorry, 1858 and 1861. So as the train made its way through this rugged cave filled terrain now known as Devil's Den, it was quite the opportunity for outlaws to ransack the cars. And rumor Um. has it that the caves served as excellent hiding places for criminals (gasps) who took advantage of those packed train cars. Ooh, spooky. I love that. Yeah, super spooky. Later on in 1861, with the start of the Civil War, Devil's Den once again served as a hideout, but this time for Confederate soldiers who conducted raids on Union supply lines. War wasn't the only tragedy that struck Devil's Den. The town of Anna sat within the park's boundaries, but it was destroyed by a flood in 1893. And today you can see remnants of foundations from the town in a cemetery. So that's tragic. Mm -hmm. In the 1900s, brothers Otto and Otis Dodson reportedly burned down the valley's only local school because they no longer wished to attend classes. So that's a little extreme. I get it. I get it. And in the 1920s and 30s, the cave served as a place to hide moonshine and other illegal substances during Prohibition. It's like the caves have seen some shit. They have been around. Totally. Sadly, during the Great Depression, the U.S. government took the land from families who couldn't pay their property taxes and transformed the area into a state park in 1933. President Franklin D. Roosevelt formed something called the Civilian Conservation Corps, which employed thousands of men to complete federal projects like the creation of Devil's Den State Park. And today it is recognized as one of the best CCC sites in the U.S. and was added to the National Register of Historical Places in 1994. Of course, the government has a habit of taking things that don't belong to them. And before there were Confederate (laughs) soldiers, cowboys robbing trains, the land was home to indigenous people. Mm -hmm. The park is currently home to 11 archaeological sites that indicate the presence of Native Americans as far back as 8,000 years ago. It seems the land was mostly used for hunting grounds. Uh, unsurprisingly, I couldn't find much about the indigenous history of the area Mm -hmm. outside of like the generic information. Um, but I did a little digging Mm -hmm. and I found that the four main tribes of Arkansas were the Caddos, the Quapaws, the Osages, and the Cherokee. And the Caddo population was reduced by disease brought from the white people and they were forced to give up their land in an 1835 treaty. Quapaws faced a similar fate, losing numbers to disease and war, forcefully giving away their land via treaties in 1818 and 1824. The Osages lived mainly in Missouri, but they often ventured into Arkansas to hunt. They ceded their land in an 1808 treaty, and the Cherokee, residing in eastern Arkansas, were forcibly moved to the west from 1838 to 1839. 
Uh, the Trail of Tears passed right through the heart of Arkansas. Oh, For those who aren't familiar, this was the forced relocation of indigenous peoples in the southeast to western Indian territory in the 1830s. And while the Trail of Tears didn't go directly through Devil's Den, it was really close. Uh, Devil's Den is located between Van Buren and Fayetteville, two towns where the trail went directly through. Oh, crazy. And military and tribal records suggest that approximately 100,000 indigenous people were forced from their homes during the 1830s, and some 15,000 people died during their journey west. So sad. So that's a lot of background, um, and I'd argue it's a pretty traumatic one for one little place in this country. Yeah. Um, You've got indigenous people being forced from their homes, Prior to that, war between tribes. Later down the line, very traumatic war between the Union and Confederacy, train robberies, towns flooding, people's homes being taken from them. And now today, it all serves as a lovely state park where you can <laughs> kayak and camp and hike and be glorious views of the Ozarks. <laughs> Sounds nice. And just ignore <laughs> the fact that it's 100% haunted and sort of marked right? by very dark energies. Exactly. That's what I really wanted to relay here that like there is some weird there's got to be some weird energy Bring and shit going your on. crystals. Charge them yes, up in the sunlight candles. and wear them around yes. your neck. I yes, don't know. All don't know day. What it, means. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it sounds good though. Feels good. Yeah. What's that thing like someone with bangs tell me what planets are making me upset? It's the same thing. Some white girl with bangs, mm. please tell us how crystals work. Tell me. Actually, I don't really want to know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, especially not from the white girl with bangs. Like, Sorry. <laughs> I'll pass. Uh, despite the tragedy from the past 200 years, it does sound like it's a nice spot to explore. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. great place to find fossils if you're into that. I actually texted Darren, who was on our episode a few uh, episodes yeah. ago. And I was like, have you ever been to Devil's Den? He's like, well, yeah, it's got great fossils. It's a great place to go. <laughs> okay. Duh. Calm down. That's amazing. <laughs> um, the park is home to 64 miles of trails, rustic cabins for rent, 146 campsites, paddle boats, places to kayak and canoe, basically like an outdoor person's paradise. And as it's only eight miles from Fayetteville, it's pretty accessible, making it a great place for people to go. Yeah. Cool. So it makes total sense that the Van Alst family decided to rendezvous there in the summer of 1946. Mm. And yes, now we are finally getting to the spooky part. <laughs> Although I would argue that genocide is pretty scary. That's very reasonable. Yeah. Back to Catherine. Uh, they set up camp near a Creek. And I did read in some places that they actually were staying in a cabin. And like I just said, devil's den does have cabins for rent so uh-huh. it could have been Maybe. in either whatever it doesn't matter um and this area was perfect for their family because it was near a creek so the kids could play they could fish you know have a fun time outside while being not too far from the cabin mm-hmm. and they did just that the brothers fished in the creek their daughter little Catherine, eight years old splashing around exploring the shallow waters and at some point as the brothers are fishing Catherine wanders off just completely disappears oh no Of course, they don't go to like the worst place right away. They assume she's just wandered off. Maybe she lost her way. She's heading back to the campsite. So they start calling her name, walking in the woods in search of her. But there's nothing. No trace of Catherine. Oh, no. She wasn't at camp. She wasn't at the creek. She wasn't in the surrounding woods. And they kind of thought like, how did she manage to get so far out of like vocal range? Like she's eight years old. She's only wearing her bathing suit and she's shoeless. Like how could oh, she God. be yeah how could she get far that enough far? away that she can't hear us exactly so they start completely panicking her parents alert authorities and a full-scale search begins and they're meticulous searching several square miles for her they're calling out her name using search dogs looking in caves retracing their steps and this goes on for six whole days 
pretty long time for a search. Yeah. Her family joins in and her dad was so distraught while searching that he actually collapsed in the woods. The sheriff banned him from searching any further for fear he'd have a heart attack or stroke. And they actually made him wait at a station while they continued looking for Catherine. Oh, my God. In a 1946 newspaper clipping from the North Star, they said they kept him in protective custody, which I thought was so weird. weird. You know, like you're going to keep your keep him from looking for his kid. I don't know. I guess they couldn't have two possible deaths on their hands, so. And they want, and I, I imagine they were like, okay, but if he like finds her body, what is he going to do? Right. Is he That's freak a great the point. Fuck out and like go insane. Right. Great point. So while he's in protective custody, he's reading the newspaper, and it's here in protective custody while reading the oh, paper that he discovers his daughter has been found alive <gasps> after six days in the wilderness wearing nothing but her bathing suit. Oh my god. I guess they hadn't been able to find him in time to tell him in person. And there's no cell phones back then, obviously. But still, like, why would you have how are you able to tell it to a journalist before you were able to tell it to the father? So I guess what happened is searchers had decided to retrace their steps and head back into the woods, covering ground that had already been scoured. They called Catherine's name, passing by one of Devil's Den sandstone caves, one they'd already passed through previously. And as luck would have it, little Catherine Van Alst walks out in a daze and says calmly, here I am. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, my God. <laughs> so here's like, where I'd it gets like, what? even weirder. What? what? I know. What do you mean here you are? What? Where the fuck have you been, little exactly. child? Exactly. Catherine was found five miles and 600 feet higher in elevation from where she disappeared. Oh, my God. I know. Isn't that so bizarre? She walked 500, or five, 500, 500 miles. Five miles just like barefoot in her bathing suit. <laughs> yeah. In her bathing suit. Just by herself. 500 miles. Oh, yep. my God. Yep. Kind of hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Some reports say that to get to the spot where she was found, she would have had to have walked 30 zigzaggy miles through very uneven, rocky terrain. <gasps> She would have walked over rocks, up mountains, through forest, and eventually into a cold, dark cave, all in bare feet. What the fuck? And speaking of Catherine's feet, Catherine's were described as swollen, which makes sense. Yeah. But apart from that, she only suffered bug bites and some scratches from the briars, and she seemed pretty much okay for an eight-year-old who'd been lost in the woods. Oh, my God. Right? (laughs) How? I know how. There's a pretty popular book by author David Politis. I might be saying that wrong, but... We're going to go with it. Called Missing 411, Western United States and Canada, Unexplained Disappearances of North Americans that Have Never Been Solved. Kind of a mouthful for a book title, David. But Very long title. It's fine. And in this book, Politis claims that Catherine couldn't remember what happened to her during those six days, that it was all very vague and murky. What? He says that to survive, she happened to find the right berries to eat, despite the area being overgrown with the poisonous variety, and that some nights she'd slept in, quote, warm grass, never elaborating on why the grass was warm or what that meant. What the fuck? Incredibly, the cave she was found in had a freshwater spring that provided her with a drinking source. So, like... (laughs) Pretty but how amazing. quickly did she get to that cave? Like, I feel like it would have taken yeah, and what the did entire she drink time she that? was missing. Yeah. Right. Right. Great point. Oh, my God. Of course, it was also strange that this particular area had already been searched and there'd been no sign of Catherine. And in David's book, he says that Catherine claimed on several occasions she'd actually called out to searchers, but that they paid her no mind or had not been able to hear her. Oh, my God. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that all of this leads to one feeling like a little creeped out, especially knowing the history and that this area has seen a lot of trauma. It's pretty weird. How did she not have more injuries? How did she get so far from camp and then manage to find a cave that had just what she needed to survive? 
How did she know which berries were poisonous and which were safe to eat? There are a lot of valid questions. And on this podcast, a lot of valid potential explanations. Mm -hmm. Some people believe she was lured away from the site. Some, of course, believe she was taken by UFOs or maybe a pair of Bigfoot parents that kept her alive. Mm -hmm. There are folks who think that sleeping in warm warm grass was actually her sleeping with a Bigfoot or like a Bigfoot keeping her alive. (laughs) I even found one article that claimed the area was feared as a place of a place of spirits by local tribes, though I couldn't really find anything like actually legit about that claim. Mm. And of course, some say it was fairies, though I've heard that fairies are actually quite mean. (laughs) Depends on the fairy, right? Yeah, I think so. Mm. Uh, And I guess if you're willing to believe that anything is possible and you're a fan of this podcast, which I'm guessing you are because you're listening, you Mm -hmm. could entertain any of those theories, except maybe the fairies. I don't know why those are a stretch for me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like maybe. Because we don't have any... (laughs) legit sightings of them (laughs) the only photos that we have like bigfoot yes like we have a we have (laughs) did i tell you the other day i was at the coffee stand and some old guy was like what's that tattoo i want to believe in what so i like pulled up my sleeve (laughs) to show the flying saucer he goes oh absolutely you know here's the thing just think about statistics and science hell yeah if if 99 of the people who had sightings were faking it or were wrong that still leaves thousands and thousands of sightings in the 1% that have to be right. Like there's my man. Statistically, there's no way this many people have seen them if they don't exist. And I was like, fuck yeah, my dude. Absolutely. Yeah, I was dude. like, yeah, I agree. Can you be on our podcast? He was like almost like trying to convince me. I was like, homie, I have the no, no, flying I saucer believe- tattoo. Like I'm on your team. Like, <laughs> like okay, not only do I want to, I do. I sort of I enthusiastically do. I do. do. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should cross out the want to. I and just, just, I believe. Put- do <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it was funny i was like and i said you know it's the same thing that's with bigfoot amazing. he said yeah that's a good point i was like there's so many sightings oh. even if most of them are fake or lies true they, they're not all fake or lies and he was like yep yep same with all of it valid he's like we don't understand the universe and i was like no we don't hell yeah cheers sir. to you my dude yeah yeah for real i, I didn't Love ask this for guy. he could have been my new best friend my replacement yeah. at least and our, i would actually be fine being replaced yeah that would be non-threatening <laughs> you'd be like he's gonna buy soon anyway it's totally all. fine it's fine <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry anyway no loved that aside um <laughs> but there is one theory that we're missing one p- major possibility we haven't covered abduction by a human no but that is a really good theory yeah um Mm. thankfully no that is well maybe Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe yeah um but after reading newspaper clippings from newspapers.com uh from 1946 it seems that this is probably the most likely to be true and it is also maybe the most difficult to believe for some reason it appears that Catherine van alst was just a dope ass little eight-year-old girl who had her wits about her and was able to survive Uh in the great outdoors Uh by herself for Uh six whole days Crazy. While Politis claims that Catherine was in a daze and doesn't really remember much, that doesn't really seem to be the case. A lot of people feel like mm. he's kind of um, making a big deal out of something that wasn't really true. Oh. After being found, she was able to relay memories to searchers. She said when she was tired and needed to rest her swollen feet, she dangled them in a mountain stream. She said she'd heard the dogs, but she was too afraid to approach them because they sounded so large and scary. Oh, um, I read one article that said when she was an adult, she'd rewalked the route that she'd taken as a kid and was able to show people how she'd gotten to the cave oh, wow. um, so I'd argue that she had a pretty good memory how would she remember that yeah I yeah. know mm-hmm. 
After being rescued, they asked how she'd managed to get so far from the family cabin. And she just said, I just couldn't find it. She just kept walking. Yeah, pretty far. During the day, she said she'd leave her cave and go looking for the cabin. And at night, she'd return and start the whole thing over the next day. She was hospitalized for two days. And while she had been able to survive on berries, she was still pretty malnourished and thin. There's a picture we're going to post where she looks like really skinny Mm. and she still has her bathing suit on. And it's just really pretty sad photo. Sad. But once hospitalized, they started her off on ice cream and then continued on a light diet. And there's an article from the Kansas City Times that says she wasn't allowed to touch the boxes of candy hospital visitors gave her. What a bummer. (laughs) Yeah. So if you eat too much at once, you become really sick. Right. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I say the miracle within this tale is that this little girl had enough smarts to survive in the woods and rescuers had enough will to keep looking, even in places they'd already tried. Uh, This story could have had a much worse ending. And I think the other moral is that we don't give kids enough credit. They're so resourceful and attuned to their own needs. And we think seriously, if only she hadn't been so directionally challenged. (laughs) (laughs) It made me think of when I was a kid, I was part of a search party for a girl that went missing about Mm. like 15 minutes away from my house. Maybe I remember my mom picked me up from school. And was like, we're going to go look for this girl who went missing yesterday. Oh, wow. And um, so we were like with a group, like like hundreds of people showed up to help and like canvassed the area. So we had like we were hanging signs like, you know, like missing signs all over. Mm-hmm. And they were giving us all these tips. And one of the things that they said was that kids who go missing, I was about maybe like 10 and she was the same age as me within a year. So she was like about the same age. That's hard. They said that kids who go missing often will hide from the search party because, you know, they're scared. They don't know what's going on. They don't know who to trust. And um, like one of the search and rescue people was telling us about how they would wear like headlamps at night when they're searching. And like there was a kid once who hid from them because he thought they were monsters because like he was, you know, just saw all these people with like big sort of like Cyclops lights on there. I mean, I get it. Heads. Yeah. So we were supposed to like call her name a lot and like keep saying like, Heather, like we're, you know, your parents sent us, we're looking for you. Did you find her? um, She was found like, they arrested her neighbor and she was found dead in a lake like a few days later. Oh my God. Yeah. Like a neighbor within her, um. She lived in like an apartment or like a condo complex uh-huh. and like a an older guy that lived in the in the same complex abducted wow. her while she was riding her bike and I think assaulted her. That's been pretty traumatizing yeah, for it was you. Really scary. I just remember being like it's like so shocked when they found her cuz it was like no no we were going to yeah. find like we were we were just looking for her yeah. like she was just riding her bike she's got to be in of the her woods. apartment building. Yeah, like she's just oh, around man. here somewhere. Yeah, and um, that's hard. Like part of our um, like area that we were canvassing because they would like, you know, the search and rescue people like would assign you. You have to go from this street to this street and like go right. look. Was um, like a concrete, um, like factory, uh, like outdoor like storage area. So we would we would look in all mm-hmm. these pipes or all these like huge pipes. You know, we had to go talk to the oh, business. Oh We would look just to, like see if she was like hiding in them or I don't know if she was like right. dead in them. And then like years. How long did you search for? <gasps> Probably like four or five hours. We were out there wow. until it got dark out, and then it was like time to go home. But um, yeah, years later, I ended up dating the son of the guy who owned that concrete pipe company. <sighs> and we like went there for something and i was like i've been here before i searched for heather thomas on your dad's land when i was like nine or ten isn't that weird wow um yeah it was really sad and i like 
yeah, just like one of those things that I remember like the whole day so clearly, you know, because it was such an unusual yeah. experience. Stuck in your brain. But I remember the search and rescue guys telling us all these different things about like that mm-hmm. kids will hide from search and rescue because they're terrified right. and they're kind of in this weird state of shock right. and it's don't not really normal know what to do. And, so it makes and their sense. parents have said, don't talk to strangers. Right? It makes sense that she's like, oh God, yeah. like barking dogs, that they could be vicious. They could be scary. I'm just going right. to hide in the cave. I wonder what made her eventually just be like, here I am. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, I wonder if they were calling her name. Yeah, and she maybe. Was like, oh, they're maybe looking they for were. me. Oh, they That's know safe. me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Also, weird. makes me happy that Russell learns at school what berries to eat and what berries not to eat. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because I'm like, my three year old could survive for a minute in the forest. Right. He'd know. He'd know what to eat and what he to would survive. Know what on. berries to eat at least, and like what like totally. leaves and stuff you can eat. <laughs> right. And what not to, more importantly. Yes, exactly. More importantly. Well, if you ever visit Devil's Den, which you still can, um, although it is interesting to note that the caves are not accessible at the moment and haven't been for a few years uh, due to a horrible disease that's killing bats called white nose syndrome. And here's where the bats come into play that I said would when I held up my mammoth cave candle. Yes. Um, It's killed over 90% of northern long-eared little brown and tri-colored bat populations in fewer than 10 years. Oh, that's crazy. It's a disease that affects hibernating bats and is caused by an invasive, cold-loving fungus. The fungus grows on the bat's skin during their hibernation, and it results in dehydration, starvation, and often death. And this is really crazy. It was first documented in New York in 2006. Oh, shit. And it's already spread to 35 states, seven Canadian provinces, and has been confirmed in 12 bat species. That's wild. There's some belief that humans transfer the fungus when they go cave to cave in the same gear. So they're just as a precautionary measure, keeping people out in hopes of saving the bats. So if anyone listening visits a place and the caves are closed, don't be pissed off. Think about the bats. And if you're scared of bats, hello, bats are so important to the ecosystem. And they're also a total symbol in the world of spooky things. So we need to save the bats and you need to get over it. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Um, And if you happen to be out camping with your family and you get turned around and can't find them, make sure that whatever clothes you wear into the cave that gives you respite aren't the same clothes you wore into the last cave you were lost in. 100%. The bats. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. I just looked it up and where this is, Devil's Den, is only an hour and a half from um, Eureka Springs where, do you remember the Crescent Hotel that we covered? <gasps> yes, I do remember. So mm-hmm. it's just like a spooky region. Spooky place. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Tracks. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I also found when researching this, another little story about a woman disappearing in Arkansas and then reappearing. Um, it wasn't really worth mentioning, but... Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just a Just weird Arkansas spot. is like maybe more cool than we once thought, or at least I can speak maybe. for myself. And <laughs> actually, maybe really pretty based on some maybe. photos that I've seen. Yeah, I guess this park looks pretty, but it's not on my hot list. Until yes. uh, we started this podcast, I thought I would die before visiting Arkansas. Like, not that I would rather die, but just like I will die. Yeah, and not yeah, have been I probably there. Won't ever see it. But now I'm like, eh, if I were like a few hours away, I might make the detour. It looks pretty. Yeah, and Eureka Springs does sound cool. So. Uh-huh. I guess I'd go to see that. Yes. Sounds worth it. Okay. Moving on to our moving second on. story. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to make a little warning here that this next story involves a pretty horrible plane crash. So if you are fearful of flying, this may not be the best story for you to listen mm. to, but it is truly incredible. 
And I recommend that you fast forward like, I don't know, three minutes or so if you don't want to hear the crash bits because it gets really gnarly. So you have I been I do warned. want to hear the crash bits. <laughs> well, you don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> but if I just started like, took my headphones out, like just talk for a while and then like gesture yeah, me just, when I should I'll, come back I'll on. I'll just make like, uh-huh, oh, wow, yes, noises <laughs> while I'm talking. Uh, okay, so our next story takes us to a very different kind of forest altogether. We are heading deep into the Amazon jungle where 17-year-old Julianne <gasps> Kupke oh. found herself injured and yes. alone after falling two miles from the sky during a horrific aviation accident in 1971. I've gone down a, crazy. a Wikipedia rabbit hole on this story, so I'm so glad that you're covering it. It's so weird. It's wild. It's- it's incredible. She's an mm-hmm. incredible woman. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's absolutely insane that I can even start a story with that line. Like, right. Fell two miles and didn't die. And then found your way home. Like fell, fell two miles into the fucking Amazon. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Pretty freaking crazy. Mm-hmm. So before falling through the sky, Julianne wasn't your average teenager. Born in Lima, Peru, her parents had a passion for the jungle. And when she was 14, they started a research station in the Amazon jungle called Penguana. And the purpose of this research station was to, you guessed it, research, but more specifically to explore the biodiversity of the flora and the fauna and study those ecological relationships. Cool. Her parents were super into this jungle lifestyle where she became something of like a wild child. She learned survival skills in this pretty rugged terrain. It kind of reminded me of Swiss Family Robinson, like looking at the pictures. Mm -hmm. She's like Mm -hmm. catching butterflies in a net and she's paddling, you know, these native canoes. And um, it just looked like a really cool childhood. And she was homeschooled for a couple of years. But eventually authorities said, no, she needs to do high school in a regimented real setting. wow. So she was required to complete her studies in an international German school in Lima. She was German, Um, born to German parents uh and born in Lima, Peru. She graduated on December 23rd, 1971. And after attending the prom with her classmates, she and her mother, ornithologist Maria Kupke, scheduled a flight on Christmas Eve in the hopes that they'd be able to celebrate in Penguana with her father, biologist Hans Wilhelm Kupke. And he really did not want them to book on this airline. Uh, it had a really oh, bad no. reputation. He was like, maybe you just shouldn't. Maybe you should wait. But They're they were like, trying no, to get no, home no. time for Christmas. Yeah, we want to be with you, oh. Dad. Yeah. One of the most incredible sources I found for this segment was a documentary by Werner Herzog. Oh, wow. He's the director responsible for Grizzly Man. Mm-hmm. He was also in um, Jack Reacher, which was really weird that oh, I discovered funny. today. I saw Jack Reacher under his, you know, credits, and I was like. Werner Herzog like, directed what? Jack Reacher, and no, he's just in it for some reason. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> he's really recognizable by his voice. Yeah. Um, he's got a really interesting voice. Um, and the film I'm focusing on about Julianne is called Wings of Hope. Interestingly, Herzog was actually supposed to be on that doomed Christmas Eve flight, <gasps> but due to overcrowding and airplane issues, he didn't make it in time. And I'll get into that a little bit more later. Oh my god! But such a close encounter to this potential demise made him feel pretty close to the story. Mm. So he reached out to Julianne years after the crash mm-hmm. in 1998 about making this film. And so together they decided to retrace her steps from that day, starting at the airport. Crazy. Totally. So on that fateful night or afternoon, this happened around noon when they, you know, took off on their plane, everyone wanted to get a flight home to make it home for the holiday. Right. Julianne said she and her mother were so grateful to have booked a flight, but they were also anxious because the airline Lanza had a pretty horrible reputation, having had two previous crashes that 
were deadly, like hundreds of people died. So like I said, her father like urged them, please book on another airline, oh but there just weren't other options. Mm-hmm. Herzog had actually bribed his way onto the flight with a $20 bill. Like he oh put a $20 bill on the counter to an agent was like, please, I need to get on this flight. Oh and she agreed. She's like, yeah, you're on the flight. Don't worry. But then a sudden announcement canceled that flight as Lanza only had one plane after those previous crashes. That's how bad things were. They just had one airplane oh, left. God. And this single plane was responsible for flying into the mountains and back and then into the jungle and back. But this p- single plane was held up for repairs in what Herzog describes as, quote, an ominously long time. Oh, and in the end, there was only time for one flight. So only 92 people were able to fly that day. And the jubilation of knowing they'd be home for Christmas was heard throughout the airport. Like everyone was so stoked that they were the 92 able to go. Oh, and unfortunately, they'd never make it. Now, Herzog, I feel like, is a pretty fucked up director because he makes them all get on this flight together to fly out to the jungle, this time on Aero Peru, not on Lanza. Mm-hmm. And he makes them sit in the same row and the same seat as she did when she flew oh that night. Can you imagine? Nope. So she's basically seeing the same things from yeah, the air yeah. that she saw on this plane. So during the flight the original flight 27 years prior Mm -hmm. the plane flew over the andes mountain range where thunderstorms are pretty prevalent Mm. and during the first 20 minutes of that flight it was pretty normal and calm but the sky became increasingly cloudy and julianne's mother maria became increasingly anxious the plane flew directly into the storm even though it seemed like they really shouldn't i read that some of the pilots and the you know crew felt really pressured to get everyone home for the mm-hmm. holiday so they were just like you know fuck it we'll we're just, just gonna it. go we're gonna do how it how bad exactly. could it be it's just gonna be turbulent exactly. so julianne said that clouds flew pa- past the windows like wild animals mm-hmm. and as the sky grew black it was punctuated only by flashes of lightning oh, so God. just and just like a horrible experience to fly in turbulence knocked passengers around it opened up overhead bins sending presents flying through the aisles and suddenly a bright flash of light illuminated the right side of the plane and her mother maria screamed this is the end (gasps) and then the whole world went black for julianne oh my god absolutely horrible later she'd remember that the plane went into a nosedive and as the plane's engines roared loudly people screamed suitcases flew to and fro and suddenly julianne was still trapped to her seat and found herself outside of the aircraft she said it was not so much that i had left the plane but rather that the plane had left me it simply was not there anymore oh my god buckled into her seat she felt like she was suspended in midair eventually entering a spiral as she dove down to earth The seatbelt squeezed her stomach, completely knocking the air out of her. And as she watched the earth quickly approaching, she suddenly realized like what had happened. Like, oh, my God, the plane fell apart and I'm suspended in the sky. Oh, my God. And I'm about to hit the ground. Right. Like this is about to happen. And as she's about to hit the ground, she sees the trees laying below her and she compares them to the heads of broccoli. Like it was so green. And that's the first thing her mind thought was like, oh, it looks like broccoli. And then boom, the world is black again. We know now that the bright light Julianne saw was lightning striking the right side of Lanza Flight 508. It's now regarded as the deadliest lightning strike disaster in aviation history. Crazy. The bolt caused the aircraft's right wing to catch fire, and it eventually separated from the rest of the plane. As it plummeted towards the Amazon rainforest below, structural failure caused further breakup of the aircraft. Oh, my God. 
Later, it came out that the mechanics working on the planes had previously only worked on motorcycles. And the pilots apparently didn't have appropriate licenses. And in some articles, I read that the airplanes were actually built out of parts from old planes that had been taken apart. Oh, so that's why it broke apart so easily. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much they could have, like, Mm -hmm. done if it's going to get hit by lightning. Yeah. But still, not not looking good for Lanza Airlines. And I think, like... Planes get struck by lightning sometimes. Like, that happens. Yeah, they shouldn't just fall apart. One of my teachers told a story about his plane being struck by lightning once. Oh, and God. It like, it was glowing. But it didn't crash. It didn't, like, explode or anything. Mm-hmm. I wonder if now they have, like, I don't know, maybe this is something stupid to say. But, like... Ways to, like, protect against it. Yeah, like fire mm-hmm. barriers or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Tell us. Are you a pilot? Let us know. <laughs> yeah, if you know anything, we don't. Please tell us. In total, the crash killed 91 of the 92 people on board, 85 of its 86 passengers, and all six of its crew. There are some indications that 14 of the passengers survived the initial crash, but 13 died while awaiting rescue. Oh and the God. only surviving passenger was Julianne Kupke. Julianne fell nearly 10,000 feet, which is almost two miles, is, before her seat landed with her in it. so insane. Isn't that fucking crazy yeah to fall two miles and live uh, i can't even like everything had to align absolutely perfectly for her to survive perfectly yeah like how can you not feel like your life has a purpose after that Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. good god but her mom died so i feel like that would overshadow some of the happiness totally yeah for sure well and obviously it was really traumatic as well yeah yeah very horrible all around The lush vegetation of the jungle cushioned her fall, and miraculously, she only suffered a concussion, a broken collarbone, a sprained knee, a gash on her right shoulder and left calf, and one eye was swollen shut, while from the other, she could only see from a narrow slit. And what sucks even more is obviously... She just landed in the middle of the fucking jungle. (laughs) Right, right, yeah. But she'd lost her glasses in the crash, and being nearsighted, what vision she had was very poor. Oh, man. She only had one shoe, a sandal... And she was wearing what she refers to as a skimpy miniskirt. Not the best outfit oh, for the yikes. jungle. Mm-mm. In Herzog's film, Julianne goes through possible explanations for how she thinks she might have been able to survive such a horrible crash. And she thinks it's probably a combination of all three of these possibilities. Mm-hmm. First, she says that in thunderstorms, there are very strong updrafts that kind of push things up mm -hmm, towards the sky. mm -hmm. And so maybe one of those drafts had kind of been holding her seat upward as it fell down, making it less extreme. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was also strapped into the end of her seat. She was at the window seat. Her mom was in the middle. And then there was a gentleman on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so as it fell, it created a spiral. And she likened it to like a maple seed. You know, you can picture those coming to the ground, slowly falling rather than just nosediving. And lastly, she said that the place where her seat was found was full of dense trees and vines, and her seat is believed to have fallen backwards. So she was looking up at the sky, and the seat fell right into the right place and broke her fall. Really incredible. She's really lucky. I mean, she's really unlucky, and she's really lucky. But also really lucky, yeah, both of those Mm -hmm. things. Before she awoke deep in the jungle, Julianne said she had two strange dreams. In the first, she was just flying around like, crazy in a dark room she heard booming and roaring noises as if she herself was equipped with an engine 
And in the second dream, she felt an urgent need to wash herself. She dreamed she was covered in sticky, muddy substances, Mm -hmm. covered in water, and she felt such an urge to bathe. In her dream, she thought, well, it's just so simple. You just get up and walk to the tub. And as she stood up in her dream to go to the tub, she awoke in real life and found herself, in fact, covered from head to toe in mud and water from the rain all night. And I just think it's so interesting how like the brain was kind Mm -hmm. of like protecting itself Mm -hmm. and like incorporating the real life things, but knowing it's too Mm -hmm. intense to actually live through it. So like, we'll just make it a dream. Yep. We'll make yep. engine noises a part of your subconscious. Let's introduce this idea slowly and gently. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not as terrifying when you wake up by yourself in the Amazon. In a New York Times article, she said she laid in the jungle almost like an embryo for the rest of the day, through the night and into the next morning, laying underneath the row of seats for protection. So she was kind of like cuddled in to this row of seats. She said, I recognized the sounds of wildlife from Penguana and realized I was in the same jungle and had survived the crash. What I experienced was not fear, but a boundless feeling of abandonment. Just being completely alone. Completely alone alone in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Well, and I imagine Mm -hmm. that the um, wreckage, if it broke apart, like so high up in the atmosphere... It, it could be spread over like hundreds and hundreds it was. of miles, right? It was four days before she saw anything else from the crash. Wow. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, yeah. I'm going to go find the rest of the plane and like right. find food and gear and right. steal a dead person's shoes. Right. <laughs> That's what exactly. I would do. But it's like, where That's could smart. that all be? Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Not anywhere close. Yeah. I think one of the best things about Herzog's documentary is that it really gives you insight into this landscape, like how dense Mm -hmm. and unforgiving it is. Mm -hmm. And while she's talking in the movie, her hands are covered in mosquitoes, like dozens of them just covering her hands. And she's like not even bothered by it. She's just like talking. (laughs) I can't even imagine. That would be enough for me to not go there. Right. And then, of course, you have the poisonous snakes and spiders, stingless bees that clumped all over her and all the dangers that come with being lost in the jungle. And then you compound that with having survived a plane crash, like you said, knowing your mother didn't make it. And you've got yourself a really, 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 really shitty situation. Or wondering, like, like, did my mom make it 100 miles away? Right. Like, is she just alive and I don't know it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. After the crash, the Peruvian government sent out search planes and helicopters in what is now described as the most extensive search in Peruvian aviation, searching for any signs of the crash. But with the thickness of the jungle, they saw nothing. It was as if the jungle had just like swallowed them Mm -hmm. up. The trees above the impact site looked completely untouched. No branches were broken. No sign that a plane had gone down whatsoever. She said that she did hear the planes for a few days, but soon they ceased altogether, and she realized that she'd have to figure out her own rescue. Oh, my God. When Julianne first tried to stand up after falling two miles, Mm -hmm. she nearly completely blacked out. Her concussion was so severe. I bet. And eventually she kind of realized the injuries that she'd suffered. Her clavicle, like I said, was broken Mm. in two and the bones were overlapping one another, but they weren't sticking out from her skin. Mm -hmm. She said it actually didn't hurt at all. And that was probably just shock and, you know, adrenaline. Her inch deep cut on her calf was jagged as though pierced by metal. But to her astonishment, it didn't bleed, which weird. that's freaking crazy. I don't get how that works. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. The first thing she did as soon as she was able, as soon as her concussion let up a little bit, was search for her mother. Mm. She crawled around on the jungle floor, calling her name, obviously with no success. So sad. So sad. It wasn't until four days after the initial crash that she came upon the first sight of the plane. 
which was another row of seats with three bodies attached. Oh, man. And this next detail is kind of hard to stomach, so you might want to fast forward 15 seconds if you're squeamish. But the seats had impacted the ground so hard that they buried themselves headfirst three feet into the earth with only the female's passengers' feet sticking up from the ground. So it was like it had nosedived into the ground, their heads are no longer seen, and just the bottom half of their bodies are sticking up from the ground. As aghast as she was at the site, she needed to make sure that one of the three women wasn't her mother. Even though she knew it couldn't be because her mother had been sitting next to her, but like yeah. with trauma, the yeah. brain doesn't work logically. So it's just, right. you know, she needed to find out mm-hmm. for herself. So she approaches the women slowly and using a tree branch because she didn't want to touch them, turns over their feet and she notices that the toenails are painted and her mother never painted her toenails. So she knew immediately, that's not my mom. Yeah, so sad. sad. With the fall of the crash, like it's kind of surprising how close so many parts of the plane are. Um, You can just kind Mm -hmm. of walk through that whole stretch and see remnants of it. But when they found the crash, eventually, the suitcases had all been opened. And of course, everyone was going for Christmas. And so there were presents hanging from trees as they'd fallen, almost like they decorated the forest for Christmas, you know, with this just horror scene. Yeah. So sad. The only tools that she found from the crash that were helpful was a bag of candy and a Christmas cake that I guess is typical of Peru. Unfortunately, the cake was soaked and full of mud and she tried to eat it, but it was so gross that she couldn't. Mm -hmm. So she left it behind, which was a decision that she would come to regret. She spent 11 days in the jungle and it was only due to the life skills she'd acquired in Panguana that actually saved her. Yeah. Like seriously, thank God she was like familiar with that. Right. Swiss family and, Robinson girl. Yeah. Do, can you imagine mm-hmm. if I landed in, in that jungle? <laughs> You'd be like, take me now. <laughs> I just curl up into a little ball and be like, well, mm-hmm. I had a good run. That was nice. Maybe Elise mm-hmm. will talk about this on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I hope Elise becomes famous talking about this. <laughs> And I hope Talking the about my jaguar that jungle. eats me does so quickly <laughs> does it and quickly? mercifully. <laughs> nope. Well, Julianne was smart and she understood the jungle and she knew to use water as a way to once again find civilization. Mm-hmm. She knew that if she followed a small creek long enough, she'd find a river and along that river, she'd find humans. And okay, so maybe I wouldn't die her, because I know to do that. Yeah, there you so go. So at least there's that. And I would eat cake yeah. even if it had mud on it. <laughs> <laughs> so I might be fine. I take it back. You'd live. If you like cake and candy, this is great. For some no one's, reason, you're a redneck no, hillbilly. No one's bugging me. It's finally get some peace and quiet around here. Oh, there'd be things bugging you. It'd be oh, mosquitoes. Literally bugs bugging, bugging you. me. Literally. Good point. Good yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Thankfully for Julianne, there was a creek near the site of the crash. She heard this trickling sound of water, and she described it like... It had been there all along, but her mind was just so full of everything else that she Mm -hmm. hadn't heard it. Mm -hmm. And eventually it just started seeping Mm -hmm. in where she realized there's water. There's water here. There's water. So she follows this creek. And along the way, she heard the calls of crested chickens, which are birds in jungles who live near water. So when she heard their call, she knew that she should change course and follow that sound. And if she found the chickens, she'd find a large body of water. Crazy. So she's very smart. Very smart girl. Mm -hmm. 
During her 11 days, Julianne said she was never hungry. She said she didn't eat the entire time, though she did drink water. And her greatest concern were her flesh wounds. Mm -hmm. That cut on her arm had become infested with flesh flies who had laid eggs. And those eggs had hatched and then eaten themselves deep within her flesh. She said she could see them in her arm and they were half an inch long. So she'd turn her arm, look at it, and just see these wiggling worms in her wound. And she understandably worried that she'd develop blood poisoning and potentially lose her arm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When she finally found that large body of water, she swam downstream, waded or drifted, and the entire way she saw caiman crocodiles in groups of two or three. Oh my God. And this is the part that freaks me out the most. As she'd float closer to their groups, the crocodiles would dive into the water directly at her. (gasps) But she didn't flee. She said, like, what else was I going to do? Go into the jungle? I would die there. Like, I have to follow the water. Oh, my God. She said that from her studies at the Ecological Center, she knew that crocs were in a danger. And here's a a direct quote from the documentary. Caymans flee at the sight of man and always hide in the water. It was very strange because I would get extremely close to the caiman and then from either side they would splash wildly into the water and dive right under me. <gasps> Hell no. <laughs> Absolutely no. not. <laughs> no. How, are they big? I'm Googling them. Yeah, they're fucking huge. Fucking oh huge God. beasts. I would not. Mm-mm. I mean, I guess like she said, what other choice did she have? But, like, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, thank you. Oh, my God. In shallow water, she carried a stick and poked the dirt in front of her as there are many stingrays who Julianne says are the real dangers of the jungle, not the crocs or snakes or tarantulas. Oh. It's these freaking stingrays that can kill you. In the evenings, Julianne would look for a place to rest, preferably a place where she could have protection for her back, such as a slope or a large tree trunk. She'd collect leaves and cover herself. And on rainless nights, the mosquitoes ate her alive in her coverless miniskirt. And during the nights when it rained, the mosquitoes were gone, but the freezing rain stung like needles, she said. So, like, there was really no good. There was no in between. There was no good good Mm. nights. It was always shit. Yeah, always shit. She stuck to her route for 10 whole days, drifting down the river, hoping to find signs of civilization. She said that she'd entered some kind of trance because she'd just drift without any thoughts, no hopes, no goals, just drifting. On the 10th day, exhausted and hungry, she stopped drifting and sat in the sand, just dozing off. And when she came to, she saw a boat right in front of her, and she wasn't sure if it was a hallucination. She's like, am I really Mm -hmm. losing it, or is there actually a boat there? So she went up to touch it, and upon realizing that it was real, she woke up real fast and was like, holy shit, that must mean there's maybe people here. And she finds a small path and tries to follow it up the embankment, which wasn't even that tall, but she was so exhausted and malnourished that even climbing on two four or mm-hmm. all fours, it was just too difficult. She'd grown so weak. Mm-hmm. But finally, with the same perseverance she'd shown this entire time, she manages to get herself up the bank, and at the top, she finds a hut And she stays in it for the night. It's like the best shelter she's had this whole time. Mm -hmm. She said that she wasn't hungry, but that she knew she had to eat. Like, Mm -hmm. if I don't eat, I might die here. Mm -hmm. And she was surrounded by a species of frog called poison arrow frogs. And these are the same frogs that indigenous people use to put poison on their arrow tips. Makes sense. And she tried with all her might to kill one to eat it, but they all eluded her. Like, she said there was one that was, like, right in front of her face, but she was so out of it she couldn't. 
she couldn't kill one. And now, mm-hmm. during this documentary, she says that, you know, eating a poisonous frog to a healthy person wouldn't kill you, but in her weakened state, it actually could have proved fatal. So it's really good that she wasn't mm-hmm. able to kill and eat one of those frogs. Julianne was found by three locals, and in a cruel twist of fate, Herzog hired one of the men to find the site of the crash for the film, one of these same men that rescued her. And while walking through the jungle, he was stung by one of those fucking stingrays. Its stinger went right through his rubber boot and deep into his ankle. And he lay dying on the sand for days until a local boat came by. But they didn't want to help him because he had no money to offer. And he actually traded his shotgun for their help. And thank goodness he was saved. And Julianne actually ended up buying the shotgun back and giving it to him. Good. Yeah. But this just like further proves like how incredibly insane it is that she made it through like pretty much unscathed. Like that she was fine. Yeah, exactly. Like basically naked. Right. Yeah. In a freaking miniskirt. After finding her in the shelter, the men cleaned her wounds with gasoline to remove the maggots. And this was such a gross visual. She described them as asparagus tips sticking up out of her arm. Is that not disgusting? I've had a number of patients who like come in from like hoarding situations or whatever who have wounds oh, that no. are infected with maggots. And it's just <gasps> Really? Mm-hmm. What do you do? Throw up. No. <laughs> <laughs> they debride them. Like they'll take them in for like surgical debridement and like clean out mm. the wounds. And then debridement is a disgusting word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um it's just so gross. But like you know when you're going if you're going through a medical record um, like wound care or nursing like they have to photograph these things mostly for like a cover your ass kind of thing where it's like we have mm-hmm. a record of this when they came in so they can't say like that they got this wound you know at the hospital sure but you don't have warning of like what notes have photos of wounds in them and what don't so the number of things that oh. i have seen that i never would have had to have seen <laughs> you know oh, no. like sacral ulcers or whatever and it's like I'm just looking through. Oh, like, let's see. You oh, know, boy. Palliative. I'm doing like a thorough chart review. And then yeah. I'm like, oh, there's a maggot wound. Oh, no, thank you. no, no, yeah. no, no, no. Although no, it's that's funny. Gross. One time a nurse practitioner I was working with said that that the maggots in this particular scenario, like it depends on what kind of bugs get in there, were actually eating the bacteria like and like keeping oh. it clean. That like they would have it would have been worse if there hadn't been something in there like eating bacteria. But I'm just Ugh. like it's honestly like one no, of my worst rather fears yes, is I having bugs inside me. Yeah. Oh god! Nope. Mm-mm. I remember seeing Mm-mm. those videos of bot flies on YouTube of people like having to use duct tape to get them out of their skin, and it just makes oh me god, want to freaking cringe. Uh, just disgusting. Just disgusting. So it I, shows like the will, how strong the will to yes. live is. Exactly. You know, that she didn't it's just incredible. lay down and die when she had bugs totally. sticking out of her skin and Absolutely a broken incredible. clavicle and her mom just died in front of her and oh my and god. She's just like, I'm gonna keep going. Yeah. Gonna keep going. Yeah. She said that the concussion kind of blinded her from being able to have other feelings. She was like, I think I just was a uh-huh. one track mind of just yeah. like I gotta go. And gotta in shock. get going. Yeah, totally. And the adrenaline and everything else. Mm-hmm. So they clean her wounds and they all load up in their boat and they take Julianne 11 hours down river. So she's already been through this horrible time and now she has to go 11 hours down this river until they come to the first village. And she said that her eyes were so bloodshot from the fall that when people saw her in the village, they fled in panic thinking that she was a (gasps) forest demon. That's how bad she looked. Oh my God. She was flown to a missionary hospital in Pucallpa and months later she was finally released. 
She actually assisted search parties in locating the crash site and bodies of other passengers. And sadly, on January 12, 1972, they located the body of her mother, Maria. Mm. In a New York Times article, she's quoted as saying, Above all, of course, the moment when I had to accept that really only I had survived and that my mother had indeed died. Then there was the moment when I realized that I no longer heard any search planes and was convinced that I would surely die. And the feeling of dying without ever having done anything of significance in my young life. So sad. Yeah. But Julianne made sure to change that. She went on to study biology at the University of Kiel and received her doctorate from Ludwig Massimilian University of Munich later returning to Peru to conduct research in mammalogy, specifically in bats. There's the bats again. Oh, my God. She married Eric Diller, an entomologist who specializes in wasps. And in 2000, she took over as director of Penguana after her father's death. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like really came full circle. And it's no wonder that Penguana was such a special place for Julianne and her family. And it's a reminder of how important the Amazon is for us all. Their research station now covers 4,000 acres. And within that area, there are at least 500 species of trees and at least as many species of plants, 400 species of ants, 350 species of birds, 52 species of bats, and close to 80 species of other animals roughly 50 species of frogs and at least 50 species of other reptiles. Butterflies are also very well researched in that area with more than 280 known species. And that doesn't even include the nocturnal ones, which she says number even more than that. So that's pretty, uh, pretty amazing that just in that small little area, there's that many creatures. Biodiversity. Totally. Mm -hmm. Um, And here's an example to underline like what a badass Julianne is. Like, obviously, Mm -hmm. we know she's a badass survivalist. She lived through the fucking jungle. Mm -hmm. But in this documentary made years later, she's standing on this porch at night with a light on. And there's these four inch long crickets that are Mm -hmm. buzzing all around her, Mm -hmm. hitting her in the face, landing on her dress. And she's just like standing there watching them. She holds one. She's like, it's nothing. (laughs) Like I'm watching it like, nope, 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 nope. And in the very next scene, she's holding a snake, just like it's nothing. And then she's standing in the river saying, the dangers of the jungle are misjudged. And in the same breath says, there are stingrays, piranhas, crocodiles, and other fish that would love to have a bite of your leg. And yet nothing is happening to me. Like, Julianne, <laughs> what the hell? Girl, like you've survived yeah, like so much. Stop. Let's not get eaten by a piranha right now. Exactly. Get out of there. Get, get out, out there. of the river. Yeah. Julianne's grueling tale defying death not once, but two times was made into a uh, motion picture titled Miracles Still Happen, and Julianne hated it. She was portrayed as like a terrified bimbo who didn't know a thing about the jungle. Oh, my God. And the jungle was portrayed as the villain. Like, the animals were out to get her, when in reality, the jungle kind of saved her, you know? Like, it's because she knew the brain did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She went on to write about the crash in her own memoir titled When I Fell from the Sky. And of course, there's this Werner Herzog film, which Julianne has described as a very therapeutic process for her. I bet. Today, the crash is still visible deep within the jungle. You can still see remnants of the plane. Pieces of carpet have been woven into the fabric of the jungle, like the weeds and grasses have pulled it in. So there's fabric like growing on the jungle floor. Emergency evacuation doors, instrument panels, and frames of long lost suitcases are strewn about in that dense vegetation. Like the locks of the suitcases are still locked and all the fabric has just washed away. Yeah, I guess it's not. It's like it's literally the middle of nowhere. It's not like they right. can take it out. 
Yeah, it's in the middle, and it's Crazy. so hard to get there. They said that sometimes it would take three hours to get like a couple hundred feet just by bushwhacking and cutting. That's how dense it is. Oh my God. And then there are personal items left behind that really remind you of the passengers who lost their lives. There was a coin purse that belonged to a little girl that still had coins inside. There was a heel of a woman's shoe, a hair curler just laying in the foliage. Just like really Weird. heartbreaking. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Peru has a memorial for the fallen victims, and 60 of them are actually buried there. And while Julianne has continued on with her life, she's now the librarian at the Bavarian State Collection of Zoology in Munich and was awarded the Order of Merit for her distinguished services in 2019. The trauma from that crash so many years ago obviously still haunts her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She said, I had nightmares for a long time, for years. And of course, the grief about my mother's death and that of the other people came back again and again. The thought, why was I the only survivor, haunts mm-hmm. me. It always Survivor's will. guilt, I bet. Totally. Being one of 92 people, mm-hmm. crazy. But despite the trauma experience within that dense jungle, it still holds a huge place in her heart. She visits Panguana two times a year for month-long excursions, studying the effects of deforestation and industrialization. Mm-hmm. And she works really hard to educate indigenous communities about the effects of human activity in the rainforest. She estimates that 17% of the Amazon has been deforested and that once 20% is gone, there's no way to recover. So she hopes that by getting the surrounding native populations to commit to preserving the environment and protecting the important resource that perhaps we can slow it Mm -hmm. down, maybe stop it. But yeah, a lot of damage has been done. She's quoted as saying, for my parents, the rainforest station was a sanctuary, a place of peace and harmony, isolated and sublimely beautiful. I feel the same way. The jungle was my real teacher. I learned to use old Indian trails as shortcuts and lay out a system of paths with a compass and folding ruler to orient myself in the thick bush. The jungle is as much a part of me as my love for my husband, the music of the people who live along the Amazon and its tributaries, and the scars that remain from the plane crash. So she still found it in her heart to love that place, even though it took a lot from her. And yeah, she sounds like a very profound woman. Totally. I know. She's been able to like integrate it into her sort of sense of self in what Mm -hmm. sounds like a very healthy. Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She, Mm -hmm. she, um, she was such a beautiful little girl and a beautiful teenager and a beautiful Mm -hmm. woman. And, um, she's so calm about it. Like when they show her going through the scene, she has no real emotions about it. She's just very matter of fact. And she said that that was like, (laughs) yes, she said that was like a shell she formed to protect Mm -hmm. herself, Mm -hmm. you know, in this horrible Mm -hmm. situation. So Mm -hmm. I really recommend watching the documentary. It's only like an hour long. Um, and it's very eye opening. I'll of course link it in the show notes as always. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Our last one is, uh, one that's really for you. (laughs) It's the creepiest of all three, and I think you will have something to say about it. So it's short and sweet, but it's really good. (laughs) Love it. Stephen Kubaki left on a cross-country skiing expedition in 1978 and completely disappeared until 1979 when he appeared on his family's doorstep with little recollection of what had happened in the past year. What? (laughs) 23-year-old Stephen was a student at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, and he decided to take off skiing near the north shore of Lake Michigan on February 20th, 1978. He went alone and told friends he might be gone for a day or two, but when they didn't hear from him for days, they became worried. 
Rescue teams searched the area he was reported to have gone, and on the beaches of Lake Michigan, they found his poles, skis, and backpack, but no Stephen. And nearby, they found 200 yards of footprints, a one-way path stretching past the lake's edge and abruptly ending. What? Just no more footprints, no more Stephen. Because he was abducted by aliens. Exactly. That's why this is for you. Yes. Investigators oh assumed that he'd fallen beneath thick layers of unbroken ice, like the the crust on top of the uh, lake, and mm-hmm. likely lay dead beneath the frozen water. <gasps> so he was declared dead. Oh my God, how upsetting for his family. I know, so upsetting. But they never believed it. They always felt like, no, there's no way that he's dead. And so they held out hope. Now, interestingly, the area Stephen disappeared in is known as the Michigan Triangle. And yes. we love a good spooky triangle on Easy mm-hmm. Bake Heaven podcast. Mm-hmm. And this particular one stretches from Manitowoc, Wisconsin, to Ludington, Michigan, and south to Benton Harbor. And it's no stranger to unexplained occurrences. In 1871, a schooner named the Thomas Hume left to pick up lumber, but disappeared overnight along with its entire seven-person crew. Oh, shit. In 1937, Captain George Danner went for a rest in his cabin before reaching port, but when crew members went to arouse him, his door was locked, he wasn't inside, and he was never seen again. What? Now, this next one, I wasn't sure if you had covered it. Uh, On June 23rd, 1950, Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 was flying from New York to Seattle, and once it reached Lake Michigan, it just disappeared. What? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So we talked about in the in our aerial abduction episode, yes. which was like episode three or something or four. Four. Which is I think. So crazy. Um, over one of the Great Lakes. Yes. Uh, the military aircraft. Oh, it wasn't a commercial aircraft. No, no. But like oh. in that sa- like same region, right? Do, 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 that went missing do, do. mid-flight. And remember it was like the two radar dots and then yes. it just became one and then no one knows what happened. And then yes. the US government admitted it and then tried to cover it up. Oh my God. It was like not so fast, eh? Go listen to that episode. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking crazy. So this is even more spookiness yes. in that area. They never found it. They did. I did find some articles that said that they found like mass graves of people who'd like washed up and then they buried them in a cemetery and they think those were those people. But I'm like, well, where's the plane? How did we not find anything? This is very weird. Yeah. So when Stephen Kubaki disappeared suddenly and then reappeared Mm -hmm. just as suddenly, all signs point to something creepy. One year later. One year later. 14 months to be exact. That is so he wild. awoke in May of 1979 in Pittsfield, 40 miles from his father's house and 700 miles from where he'd been in Lake Michigan, laying in a field, a meadow, <gasps> wearing clothes that weren't his and carrying a tiny backpack with him filled with maps that didn't belong to him. What the fuck? What the fuck indeed? So he walks into the nearest town, asks where he was, and it's not until he finds a newspaper with a date on it that he realizes it's not 1978 anymore. It's been an entire year. And he had no fucking clue. Isn't that crazy? (gasps) Yeah. Somehow he managed to find his way to his aunt's house, who then calls the other family members. And they're all, like, obviously amazingly relieved that he's alive. Oh my God. He says that the last thing he remembered was darkness and the fear of being lost on the frozen lake, but that the following 14 months are completely dark. Just blank. Oh my God. Upon seeing his family again, Stephen said, I was confused by all the hugging and kissing. I didn't feel like I'd been gone that long, but I'm beginning to understand. I'm amazed learning about all the money they spent looking for me and about graduating. 
because when he was declared missing and dead, his college had posthumously awarded him his bachelor's degree nice. in German. Isn't that amazing? So he came back with He's a like, full... good enough to take finals, yeah, came exactly. back to a Nailed degree. It. Right. Now, this I thought was so weird. He's quoted in a Lincoln, Nebraska journal uh, newspaper as saying, I have some vague feelings. I have some running shoes. I feel like I've done a lot of running. I also have a marathon t-shirt from Wisconsin. I don't know how I got it. What the fuck? What? After his initial return, Stephen refused to talk about it with local reporters. He said he had no psychiatric issues and felt no need to talk about the time in which he disappeared. His parents also didn't press him for details. His mother, Peggy, said, I'm not sure. Whatever it is, I don't care. I don't need any explanations. Like, well, Peggy, we need one. I, yeah, I need an explanation. Speak for yourself, sister. Yeah. I did find this one book that was written by Dylan James Quarles called The Quantum Biography of Stephen Kubaki. That was apparently written by a friend of Stephen. He says that Stephen agreed to sit down and give Dylan all the details, but that they had to go back to the beginning. And here's an excerpt from a letter from the author, which I thought was kind of funny and worth reading. <laughs> Starting with Kubaki's birth in 1954, the story is told in parts, relying on a mixture of conversations between Stephen and I and narrative vignettes. Alternate timelines are explored, bolstered by Stephen's own assertion that our universe is at best incomplete and at worst inconsistent. Picture a newborn unheld for six weeks while his mother recovers from pneumonia. Picture a young man, at odds with his working-class family, receiving a scholarship to the prestigious Deerfield Academy. Imagine the cultural upheaval of the early 1970s as seen through the eyes of a college student experimenting with mind-expanding substances. Mm. Travel to the University of Freiburg in Germany, where an affair with a beautiful professor brings Kubaki into the company of revolutionaries and radicals. And finally, follow the events which lead to that day in 1978 when Stephen Kubaki skied out onto the frozen expanse of Lake Michigan and vanished without a trace. In the end, Kubaki and I leave no question unanswered, no truth unexplored. For the first time since waking up in a field 15 months after being declared legally dead, Stephen Kubaki is ready for people to know what really happened. Dun, dun, dun. Obviously, it's pretty intriguing and I did not read it. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of sounds like a little MLM-y to me. Like, didn't he really yeah. sit down with you and tell you his whole life story? Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. After yeah, he yeah. like denied talking to anybody else, he would not talk mm -hmm. to anybody else. Mm -hmm. But if one of our listeners wants to read it, please send us an email or a message and let us know all your thoughts. I'm truly curious to know about I all the truths will. that they explored together. In an article from a 1979 New Journal of Mansfield, Ohio, Kubaki said he had a very vague theory of what happened. He said, The only thing I can think of is what mountain climbers suffer from loss of body heat and exhaustion. That combination can result in a temporary loss of memory. And I found quite a few people who think he entered a fugue state where a person has temporary memory loss mm -hmm. and ends up in an unexpected place. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't explain how his footprints just ended abruptly. That's true. And I looked up weather for Holland, Michigan that day and a few days after. This is where he went to school. And mm -hmm. there was zero precipitation. So it's not oh, like right. snow fell and buried the tracks. And even if it had, why did it only bury some of them? Right. So that's weird. Mm -hmm. In the same article mentioned above, Stephen said he didn't recall being under any emotional stress when he headed out that day. Mm. He said, my father was going to sign over our house to me. I had three courses at school and no trouble. I left a romance in Germany. There was no trouble with girls. I had a job lined up with the Holland Sentinel newspaper. He agreed that he'd go see a doctor for a physical checkup, but he said, I will definitely not see a psychiatrist. 
Oh, that's weird. And herein lies the irony. Today, Stephen is a psychologist <gasps> in Seattle. <gasps> oh my God, professionally, I have to find a way to know him. I know. He says he provides psychotherapy and consulting for adults, children, couples, and families, specializing in treatment of PTSD, trauma, personal growth, and spiritual development, and actually like a whole really long list of specialties that I was kind of like, can you really specialize in how that can you? How can you specialize in trauma when you were on... Not able to exactly. address your own. I and mean, you maybe won't he's go... since addressed it, but... Maybe. But I think that the whole moral here is that, Haley, you need to go and get us some answers, book an appointment, oh and then say you need to dig into your trauma from a UFO abduction like, and just see yes, what he says. Just see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, check him out is on LinkedIn. Like, do I, ha- do I know anyone who knows him professionally? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, Haley can go oh dig up the dirt. God. Yeah, 100% <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's wild. There you have it. The moral of all three of these stories is that the great outdoors can be scary as fuck, but it is possible to make it out alive. Not every disappearance ends like Glenn and Bessie's did in the mm-hmm. Grand Canyon. And the lessons that we've learned today only eat the safe berries, yep. find the caves with water sources, don't give any bats disease while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. If you're lost in the woods, follow streams that will lead to rivers that eventually lead to people. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Stephen Kubaki, all I can say is that thank Satan, the aliens were kind enough to let him go. Mm -hmm. Always play nice with aliens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can you see this? It says, get in, loser. We're doing butt stuff. (laughs) It's I'm being abducted. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, that's what that's probably what happened. And he's like, I'm not going to a psychiatrist. Uh uh-uh, uh, I don't want to dig up that butt that. stuff I went into. Nope. Mm-mm. It's either alien abduction or he was like tripping balls on drugs for a long time. But I still anything. don't understand how he, how did the footprints disappear? It's a one way footprint. That's true. I just, that's, that's, true. that's what I keep going back to. It doesn't make sense to me. That's true. That's a very good you know? point. I have no explanation for it other than aliens. Like the first two are, you know, like, clean and clear yeah you were just a couple badass bitches who made your way out of the woods but this guy you wake up in a field and clothes that aren't yours carrying a backpack that doesn't belong to you and you have memories of running did the aliens have him on a treadmill like what that's wild so he running from aliens yes running from the ufo in wisconsin during a marathon (laughs) and he got a shirt for it so crazy that's wild so there you have it i love it you were right i love it i knew you would that was my ode to Haley. so what sweet things do you have for us this evening okay so today i i didn't break ebc rules oh boy i made my own (laughs) I was like, I really want to make um, the same thing that I made like oh, a couple yeah. months ago that I really liked. So there I was like, you go. Fuck it. I get to, Fuck I get it. to make you up get the to make your decisions. I can make the same dessert. Oh, yeah, you can. I can make it even better this time. So I made <gasps> oh, little strawberry shortcakes again. again. <laughs> but they're even better this What'd time. What did you do differently? Um, I made them like flatter and longer mm. instead of like mm-hmm. taller and rounder this time. You made them less chody. yes i made them more schlongy because (laughs) um i found like last time it was too much strawberry shortcake to Mm. whipped cream strawberry ratio so i wanted more surface area on which to have Mm. whipped cream and strawberries 
Um, Love it. And it's quite good, actually. I am going to eat one. I'm sorry that you can't. This is. I wish I could have taste tested both rounds to be able to say like, oh, yes, this batch is even better, better. but I'll just have to take it. It's just really refreshing when it's so hot out, you know? Yeah. I can't relate to that because it has been rainy and cold here, so... Oh, it's rainy? The rivers, the rivers are all flooding. It's like really, it hasn't oh, stopped shit. raining for like two days. Yeah, it's just like <gasps> serious rain. Like there's a big. Like, this uh, is not tree why I moved here, Alaska. Right. <laughs> Stop raining. I, I guess it's good for yeah. like fires it's great and for nature. fires. And, yeah. yeah, totally, totally. But there's a down tree in our river, and we can't even see it anymore. Like it's just just oh, covered because the water, water is yeah. so high yeah exactly it's not wor- is it worrisome or no no we're so far i mean like i can see the river right now but we're so far from mm-hmm. it that unless it got really crazy nothing's mm-hmm. gonna happen yeah so whatever it'll go lower it, you know it's just gotta yeah. gotta run its course it's fine natural cycles yep exactly this is really so good it looks really and good it's really easy tell us about it it takes like <laughs> put so much in my mouth just now <laughs> um it takes like Less than 10 minutes to make. Oh, nice. It's like not that many it ingredients. Easy. It's really easy. Love mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I need to make it. I need to try recommend. it. Yeah. I was going to say I'll send you the recipe. Um, It's literally it's on gonna our Instagram. It's going to be on our Instagram. It Hello. already is on our Instagram. Oh, yeah. We made the same recipe as last time. <laughs> I was like, should I make a different strawberry shortcake recipe? And then I was like, no, no I like this Tried one. Why would I need to make a different one? Tried and yeah. true. And then I was like, I, ma- I make the rules. Yeah. I decide. Why not? Make some- Make the same Why thing. Why not? It's better than me who sometimes just doesn't make anything. <laughs> I was like, if it came down to making nothing or making the same thing again, I feel like yeah, Lucy would prefer that I made the same thing again. Good call. And I've got a cute vintage scale this weekend. Oh, and- nice. Took a little picture on it. So I took a little picture on my little Oh, how scale. cute. Isn't that cute? Love it. Love that scale. So the missing woman, it's like a it's like a really weird one. Oh. And not and sadly not a lot of information. Mm. Just like so last this week. This is the disappearance of Mayushi Bagat. Mm. Um M-A-Y-U-S-H-I. And then I think I hope I'm saying this right. Bagat B-H-A-G-A-T. And um she's from India. But she was living in Jersey City in New Jersey. So she went missing on um, April 29th of 2019. She was last seen walking out of her apartment in Jersey City. She was wearing colorful pajama pants and a black t-shirt. And she was reported missing by her family on May 1st because they never heard from her. She was going to university in New York. Mm -hmm. And um, she was like in in the States on a F1 student visa. And... I guess she had she had communicated with her dad like the late at night, like that night at 1230 a.m. And she said that she was okay, but will not return home until May 3rd. And then she said she did not want to be bothered. Oh, that's weird. Like was weird. Right. Yeah. And um, they like web sleuths, you know, like people like the don't fuck with cats people. Oh, yeah. Um, like those kinds of people have like taken taken up her cause because there's just like so little information about her and like tried to see if they could find anything and there's like nothing like n- oh that's man it. she just walked out of her apartment in her PJs and in never returned and, and <gasps> yeah hasn't been heard from since so like I found her on the FBI you know, like the FBI yeah like website and then someone just wrote an article about her last month just sort of like recapping summarizing it in the Jersey City Times yeah of, like what happened. I just oh, thought man. that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so the FBI is asking people with information to contact their local FBI office or the nearest American embassy or consulate. 
And, um, and I think one reason that she is, um, like why it's kind of come up is that, um, I read somewhere that the FBI has like added her to a list of like most, like most wanted kidnapped victims or like, you know, like, oh, really? hi- like, like highlighting, highlight her, yeah. like highlighting her case, like that they're very interested in like trying to drum up more information. So I think maybe that's mm. why kind of like came into the spotlight, but yeah, we'll share. Oh man, photo, how sad. Yeah. And yeah. Just and strange. Like, yeah. Just weird. I it's mean, like, like she didn't have any mental health issues where she could have been like having a like manic it. episode. Doesn't sound like mm. it. It sounds like it's out of character for her to just disappear. But her family reported her missing so quickly, you know? Yeah. It's like wild to me to think that people can just disappear. I know. Like in this day and age, you know, know. that people can just vanish. It just doesn't make in sense. 2019. It's like, where's your cell phone? There's cameras yeah. everywhere. There's like, like traffic yeah. cameras. And like, how do you not, are we not trackable? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is crazy to me. Oh, it's sad and scary. Yes, and also scary. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing. Post her photo, obviously. Um, on a lighter note, well, I guess I'm going to tell you my good thing right now. <laughs> tell I'm not me even let you wait. To, I'm not thing. even let you ask me. I'm going to tell you, Lisi. Do you have a good thing? I have a good thing. Oh, and it's that our me. magnets came. <gasps> oh my god, they're so cute. <laughs> Aren't they cute? I love it. Oh my god, adorable. So we got some. I did. De- I, I designed some magnets. Yeah. So we've got magnets and stickers now, and I'm going to get them up on the website, and you guys could buy one if you wanted to. You can put it on your car. You put yeah, it on your you fridge. can put it on your car, on your fridge, on your. If mini you have fridge. a back brace that's really. <laughs> large you could stick it on there and you could just wear it all the time yep you could stick it on anything that you can stick a magnet to or a sticker that you can stick a sticker on but you can these stick ones, a sticker on anything that's right this magnet mm-hmm. requires metal i think that's what magnets require <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right don't second guess yourself you're you're correct i'm a smart woman <laughs> um, they're little ufos with little high heels in them that are, signify so us being taken up <laughs> By the Easy Bake Coven yep. spacecraft. <laughs> Despite the fact that I think I've seen either of us wear heels. Never. Maybe, like when we did that EBC photo shoot before yeah. we started. That's it. <laughs> maybe I should have put Converse on the floor. <laughs> Bir- Birkenstocks. Yeah. Oh, that would have been good. <laughs> uh, not as cute though. This is no, a, this is cute. aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, I drew them and on adorable. the airplane home from Seattle because I was bored, so and then good. I was like, you know what? You did such up. a great job. Thank you for watch not out, being Benji. RTs. I know. It's like yeah. that. Isn't this good? Um, I could literally really do your job <laughs> yeah. oh i wish i could no just need. pull that to matt like to matt. um i just did some creative direction today so <laughs> watch it too hard on your horse because i could do your job yeah what's your See good you on thing? linkedin yeah <laughs> my good thing <laughs> um we went to canada for the weekend yes and I hadn't been, I only been once this year so far. Oh, wow. That's surprising. Or I guess twice. I went the very beginning of January when Stella died, but I don't really count oh, that yeah. as a visit because it sucked Not balls. a feel good visit at all. I went for like a few days in February. Matt hadn't been since Thanksgiving. Oh my God. Life just happened so fast. I and all of a sudden it's like, shit. Totally. Um, so we went partially because my mom was selling her stuff at a vintage market on Saturday and I was mm-hmm. going to help her. And partially because my dad retired this past week. <gasps> yeah, that's so, so we exciting. Celebrating. Um, yeah. So how was he doing? He's like really happy, I think. Um, like still not quite used to it, kind of. Yeah. Um, but it was really fun, like 
because I, Russell and I went up on Wednesday and then Matt just took the bus up on Friday night after work. Oh, nice. Because I was like, you know what? Friday to Sunday, it's like a really long drive. I mean, it's yeah. not a really long drive, but like that's a long way for yeah. like a really totally. short amount of just time. Just the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I just thought it would be nice. And like then I, that way I could help my mom get ready for yeah. the market and I don't know, just, just enjoy spend time a together. More time with my parents. Yeah. I didn't really get to see anyone because I worked on Wednesday and Thursday nights. So I like didn't do oh, anything really bummer. social. But um. Anyway, so on Thursday and Friday, like usually when we go up to visit, I'm like my mom has to watch Russ during the day because my right. dad's at work, but he wasn't at work. So I was like, <gasps> wow. on Wednesday night, I was like, Russ, guess who is going to be hanging out with you tomorrow? He's kind of like, Nelly? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, where does Grampy usually go during the day? He goes, to the dealership. And I said, yeah. And he's all done at the dealership. So where's he going to be tomorrow? He said, playing with me? I was like, yeah, Aww. dude. So that's they were so just having cute. fun. Yeah. Oh, like, that's great. great time. So that was really sweet. That's lovely. Yeah. So it was just like nice to have Be a family, family weekend. Yeah. Things are going. Um, things are happening. Life happens. Life is happening. It Saw sure my family. Is. Drank some ice caps. My favorite. Oh, I got you fuzzy peaches to send <gasps> you. I went to London Drugs on yesterday morning before we left to get you fuzzy uh-huh. peaches, and they were sold out of the big bags. Bitches. So I got you a My couple wife of needs the medium these. bags. Thank yes. you. That's so nice. I was like, ah, I'll send you some Alaska. magnets in exchange for <gasps> yes. fuzzy peaches. Deal. <laughs> it's a deal. Uh, it's a deal. And you can get your own ma- magnets by visiting our website, easybakecovenpodcast.com. Yeah. Check that merch um, out represent check that merch out check out our social media easy bake oven podcast send us an email the easy at gmail.com if you've been stranded in the woods and miraculously came out of it alive would love to hear that mm-hmm. story please tell mm-hmm. us um if you have stories you think we should cover send us that too would also love mm-hmm. to hear that if you were dropping acid with Stephen Kubaki in yes. the summer of 77 and that explains where he was, we also want to hear that. Please tell us. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you've read that book, please let us know how it was. <laughs> Summarize it for us. It. <laughs> yeah, give us this the Spark Notes <laughs> version. <laughs> and most importantly, leave us a review and rate us because we love that and it really helps and we and appreciate it. if you want to get an Easy Bake Coven tattoo, 100%, that's fine with us. Would love it. But cheek placement is preferred. Or tramp stamp in honor of Or tramp stamp, obviously. Obviously. Or facial tattoos. Yes. So that every, so you're like a walking ad for Easy Bake Coven podcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'd love that. Mm -hmm. We won't pay you, but we'd love it. No, feel free though if you want to do that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, as always, don't forget to keep it spooky. And make it sweet. Happy Happy haunting. haunting.